This is Radio 314 on the Red Ice Radio Network. Hi everyone, this is Lana. My guest today is Bill Warner, who actually has a background as an applied physicist, but had a change in direction and has written over 20 books about the doctrine and history of political Islam. He also developed the first study course on political Islam. I invited him to the program so we could hear about the history of Islam in Europe, since Islam fought over 548 battles against the classical world of Europe, a conquest we're never told about. But I find when discussing Islam, among both mainstream and alternative crowds, people immediately polarize into the Jew versus Arab debate defensively taking a side. As Europeans, we don't have to side with either or. Quite frankly, I feel Zionism and Islamism do not belong in white countries. Simple as that. But I notice more lefty truthers are the first to use the predictable terms such as xenophobe or Islamophobe when simply critiquing the doctrine and politics of Islam. Well, if only they were that worked up for Europe and the preservation of their own people. And while Mr. Warner doesn't talk about 9-11 truth, neocons, paganism, or revisionist history, I know some will be turned off by that. But as the German phrase goes, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because he does have honest and specific information to share about his many years researching Islamic doctrine. As he says, he deals with facts, not opinions. He discusses the ideology of Islam, but not Muslims, as Muslims can be a variety of people. It's like critiquing the doctrine of Christianity and not the Christian. Bill Warner coming up. Welcome, Bill. Thanks for being here. Good to be here. So you hold a PhD in physics and math. So how did you come to write about Islam? Well, I've been curious about the effects of religion on history, culture, and civilization all of my life. And so uh, I've studied religion all my life. For instance, I studied Torah at the Orthodox Synagogue for over a year. Uh, So I've just always had a fascination with religious documents and how they impact history. Well, I think a good place to begin would be to hear how Islam first entered, or rather invaded Europe. At what point did they enter into the world, if you will? Well, there are two entries. The first was, uh, the real entry in our history outside of Arabia was in the year 632 after Muhammad died. But he had risen to success and power inside of uh, Arabia, not on the basis of religion. This is one of the misunderstandings. He rose to power He preached the religion of Islam, but that didn't work so well. So then he became a jihadist, a politician. And when he died, every Arab was a Muslim. So and after his death, they proceeded to do outside of Arabia what he had done inside of Arabia. Well, we're told the lie that Rome collapsed when German tribes invaded, but that's not true. So can you tell us what really happened? Well, of course, it was a loss to the Romans for the Germans to invade. But we have to understand that the early Germans, the ones who invaded, wanted a piece of the pie. They didn't come to destroy the bakery. They wanted their own children to be taught in Latin. Uh, They wanted them to learn uh, Greek literature. They basically came to partake in the civilization and the prosperity of the Roman Empire. Now, the Roman Empire was weaker, but uh, it was not the, even after the quote, fall of Rome, much of the original empire still existed, except it was governed from the Byzantine or the, what we would now call Turkey. Now, the Greeks were also fighting Persians forever, which left oh, them all yeah. weak, right? And then the Black yes, Plague yes, came. Yes. So, so then when they were weak, who shows up? Well, a new player shows up. You see, the Arab tribes had been pushed back and forth between the Persians and the Romans 
and then later the Greeks. So they were client states, sometimes of the Persians, sometimes of the uh, Romans. And uh, so then a then what happens is Persia becomes quite weak. The Greeks become weak, not only due to battle losses, but also there was a plague. And into the stage steps the Arabs under the banner of Islam. And this was their time for power. And so they were able to take advantage of the weakness of the Greeks and the weakness of the Persians. And the rest is history. The Middle East collapsed. So is this really the first violent encounter with Islam in Europe? Yes, we're not yet to Europe, but it didn't take them long. Within 20 years, they were attacking Europe. That's one of the most amazing things is to see how they exploded, literally exploded out of the uh, Middle East into a decaying world. It's almost like they caught them off guard and as though it just happened overnight, they didn't expect it. It was one of those things in which uh, I guess all the stars converged in a very negative way because it was to shape world history for the rest of time. They destroyed half of what was considered to be Christianity at the time. Uh, Today, people, when they think of the Middle East, they figure, well, those are just Arabs and they're all Muslims. Well, neither of those things are true. Uh, But they, Iraq used to be Christian. Turkey was Christian. Egypt was Christian. Lebanon, Syria, North Africa, they were all Christian. But that was to soon fall. And as a result, Christianity was radically changed. Yeah, you've talked about that. How, how did it change? Well, it became without the Arabs. That is to say, there was a, I call the Christianity that survived the bloody stump of Christianity because there was a different form of Christianity in the Arab world. There were like three major schools. There was the Greek and the other Orthodox versions. There was the Catholic and then the Arab churches. And they had some forms of Christianity which were rather different. But this, for instance, uh, the church in uh, Persia had missionaries on the Silk Route and in the uh, great, in the, um, oh, the ruling capital of China. So they were very, they had the, the Arab church had its face to the east, which we don't think about. But this was a major change. Now, in one of my latest interviews, I spoke with Robert Davis about Christian slaves and Muslim masters. So at what, what point does the enslaving begin? Oh, Oh, I would love to have talked to him. Anyway, uh, (laughs) well, it began with Muhammad. Let me explain something to you. Everything in Islam begins with Muhammad without any exceptions. Muhammad's first slaves were Jews. He preached the religion for 13 years and got 150 Arabs to become Muslim. He moved to Medina, which was half Jewish. And two years later, or maybe it was three years later, all the Jews were gone. Uh, Medina was now Judenrein. And the last of the three tribes he enslaved. He enslaved all the women, adopted all the children into Muslim families, and then slaughtered the all-male Jews. So the first slaves he took were Jews, but that was just the beginning because Muhammad uh, ran the jihad off the sale of slaves. Muhammad was a... this, This is something I find very interesting. Because people, when they think of Muhammad, they think, well, he was just sort of a Jesus on camelback or yeah. some version of that, okay? And uh, But he was a slaver. He wholesale slaves, bought and sold them wholesale. He retailed them. He gave them his gift. He received them as gifts. He was around. He stood around on two different occasions while slaves were tortured to get information. Uh, he freed slaves. Any, he had sex slaves. The 
details that are found about his slaveholdings are rather extensive. Now, what's interesting is this. This history of Muhammad the slaver is almost unknown because uh, here's the history I was told of slavery in America. Evil white men on wooden ships went into the bushes and then brought back all the blacks to South America and North America. This was a commercial transaction. A ship owner was like a man running a trucking company. He didn't go off and do things. The slaves were in pens. There was a bill of sale. And so every single slave that came to North America and South America was, in a sense, the descendant of Muhammad. Because it, all the slavehold, all the big slave wholesalers were Muslims. Now, let me ask you a question. This is shocking news. How come it's not known? How come Europeans don't know that a million of them were taken into slavery? How come they don't know there was slavery in uh, of Buddhists and Hindus? There was slavery on the east coast of Africa. And a lot of this history, I've been, I'm an amateur historian, and I've been stunned to find out how I have been lied to. That's right. Oh, yeah. Just, <laughs> I mean, white slavery in this country, America alone, is not talked about because it's not politically correct, you see. It doesn't fit the narrative that they're trying to push right now. This is correct. Now, if we get back to the invasion of Southern Europe during that time, explain how the aftermath of how classical Southern Europe was transformed due to this invasion. Well, I'm going back to uh, when I say Southern Europe, I was in the Balkans a short year, less than a year ago, and I'm going back. In the Balkans, you find that Islam is still there. Albania, for instance, is Muslim. There's a great deal of Muslim influence. Although I had one Romanian woman say the Ottomans, which were Muslims, ruled our country for centuries. They didn't build a single bridge. All they built were mosques and took our tax money. So we're seeing here an impoverishment of the countries that Islam occupied because there's another stage between free and slave in Islam, and that's called the Dhimmi, D-H-I-M-M-I. And the Dhimmi can continue to practice his religion in private. For instance, church bells can't ring. You can't carry a Bible or wear a crucifix. So the Dhimmi status retarded all growth, civilizational growth, in wherever it touched. It's interesting. Turkey used to be Christian. And it took centuries for all of the Christians to convert to Islam because they're 99.7% Islamic, not in Turkey. This process was called by, caused by the demi status. That is, you weren't a slave as such, but you were, for instance, you had no civil rights. Um, everything you did was governed by the Sharia. If rude boys threw stones at your wife, you couldn't uh, throw stones back. You, could, you weren't even allowed to carry a weapon. For that matter, you weren't even allowed to uh, carry a sword. So all of this demi-status retarded intellectual growth. This happened, for instance, in Spain as well. People forget, they talk about the golden age of Spain. When the Muslims invaded in the year 711, there was a prosperous Roman community there. There were beautiful buildings. Some people think that when the Muslims came into uh, Spain, that there were somehow or another just European hillbillies living yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. Now, these were these were sophisticated people, and they were crushed in an invasion with Tariq. Yeah, that's right. I've, I always hear about this so-called Muslim golden age, such as the claim that Cordoba, Spain, became the intellectual center of Europe under Islamic rule. So what do you think of that? Well, there are some elements of truth here. We have to understand that uh, Europe was crippled by the jihad on the Mediterranean. There were some centuries, for instance, in which the word merchant cannot be found in written text. That's how much the 
poverty. That's how poverty-stricken Europeans became. It's almost like, what if there were no airports, and what if there were no cars that moved over any roads except maybe once or twice a year? I don't know what you're doing now, but you would be greatly impoverished after this happened. So first off, European learning was impoverished because of the impact of the jihad. The other thing that's interesting is what they did carry away from this learning is sometimes surprising. It turns out that the Moors, who were the invaders from Northern Africa that invaded Spain, had a great libraries on witchcraft and black magic and astrology and other such, quote, black arts. And the attitude towards witches and other such things was greatly enhanced in Europe by studying what the uh, Muslims had in their libraries there. So yes, there was learning, some of it good, some of it, uh, I mean, I don't try to paint everybody with an all black brush. All I'm saying is it was so good that the Spaniards fought for 400 years to drive them out. That's how good it was. Yeah, I mean, clearly this must be why Southern Europeans, I think, are more darker in complexion. They're not fair as Italians, Greeks, and Spaniards once were. And I mean, and not to mention the sex slavery of the beautiful white women who had mixed children. What do you think of that? Well, I tell you, sex slavery is a bad thing. And let me put a sidebar in here. Unbeknownst to most Americans and Europeans, there is a form of sexual slavery which is being practiced by Muslims now in Europe. There's been a huge scandal come out where Muslim men have been predators on young white girls. So this is a form of sexual slavery or at least sexual abuse. Now the tragedy in all of this, the real tragedy in everything about Islam is not what they did. The tragedy is how we responded. And so how we responded to the abuse of women is we just simply ignore it. How do we respond to the uh, harm of jihad? We just ignore it. I finished doing some uh, fact-checking on a lot of the textbooks that are going to be used here in Tennessee. They are appalling as to what they say about Christianity and then what they say about the Muslims. But that's not the tragedy. The tragedy is when we had a rally for textbooks, one minister came out. So what we have is the Islam, the effects of it frequently are bad, but what is worse has been our response, which was to accommodate, cover up, justify, and apologize. That's right. And here we are again, Rotherham, England. I don't know if you've heard. There's yes, yes, yes. That's what I'm referring to. <laughs> yeah. Yet another child sex abuse ring was discovered by, you know, and it's it was immigrants again, several named Mohammed, but you, you can't say anything because that's racist. So just turn the other cheek, right? That's right. And, and by the way, both things are right. They call me a racist, which I find amusing. I taught for eight years at a black university. When I, was in, in, when I was in Raleigh, North Carolina, I was part of the civil rights movement. So I find it intriguing that I'm called a racist because my question is, what the hey has Islam got to do with race? But it's simply the worst word they know to call somebody. And so that's what they call me. It doesn't make any difference whether I'm a, quote, racist or not. Well, you and I both know that that's just a word they use when they want to shut down the debate. But I tell you what is what is so tragically sad to me is how well it works. Yeah. I see otherwise good, decent people do not speak out on subjects because they are afraid of being called a racist, bigot, hater, Islamophobe, whatever. And it's it is appalling to me to see, for instance, how many Christian leaders do not speak out against the persecution of Christians around the world. Why do they not speak out? Well, I don't know why, but I know they don't. And as a constant, we have a serious problem here. All of our guardians are asleep. The, the pulpits should be a guardian, okay? The uh, 
but they're not. The law enforcement should be a guardian. The military should be a guardian. All of these things should be guardians with the schools, and yet they're not any of them doing their job. That's the reason you're talking to somebody like me. I'm an amateur. Why am I an amateur? I was going to do something else with my life, but I looked around and I saw, look, the ship of state is burning, and all the professionals who are supposed to take care of it, they're snoozing or lying or sleeping. That's right. I know. I, I want to get back to the Crusades because people use that as an excuse a lot. I mean, it's horrific that our pagan ancestors, I think, were slaughtered. But did the Crusades attempt to go after Muslims? Is this correct information? Yes, they did. Now, the Crusades themselves were it was a mixed barrel of apples. There were some things they did which were tragic. For instance, they attacked one of the they attacked the Byzantines and they they greatly weakened Constantinople and helped the fall. The great, there's a lot of tragedies mixed up in all of this. One of which is the weakness of, of the um, Christians was that they never unified. Let's go back to where I said the Medina, where Muhammad attacked the Jews. There were three tribes of Jews, but they would never unify with each other. The same is true of the Christians. They would never actually unify with each other because there's something about Islam that brings out nitpicking amongst Christians. I find it again and again where where people do not want to cooperate with each other because they have their own side issues going. So that's the great tragedy. Well, you pointed out in one of your talks that Islam fought, what was it, was it 548 battles against the classical world? And that's just the list that I put together. Let me explain something to you. After I got, first off, I wasn't trying to write a doctoral dissertation. Uh, I was trying to, my writing is political in the sense of, not that I'm running for office, but political in that I'm trying to change public ideas. And so after I got 548 battles, I was like, you know, that's a lot of work, Bill. Put it down. And besides that, I had the problem of how I was going to display the information. I had no idea how I would display it. Then I came up with this dynamic battle map, which you may have seen on my videos. But the 548 battles that were fought, some of them small, some of them large. But what is impressive to me is, is how consistent they are with the doctrine of jihad developed by Muhammad. Muhammad was relentless in his jihad, an average of a battle every six weeks for the last nine years of his life. And so Islam was relentless as well. And who did they attack? They attacked the Kafirs, the non-believers, the infidels. So, you know, I'm sure that the classical empire would have slowly eroded its way without Islam. We don't know what history would have been, but Islam has changed all history. It's changing history today. Look at the history of the church in Africa. Look at the history of the church in Egypt, where it's just about annihilated. So Islam has been a major mover in history. And one of the reasons, one of their great strengths is, is they have, they create such a terror in the heart of men that they say, I'd rather not deal with it. I mean, why do all the ministers in Nashville, let, let me tell you an inside secret about the church in Nashville. Nashville has been called the buckle on the Bible belt. Let me tell you, the church's pants are down around its ankles here. The influence of the church no longer goes beyond the parking lot. The reason is that the churches have become very small and insular, and they deal with very small issues. They don't see great issues anymore. I heard an African who was a former Muslim say that he, when he came to America, he discovered that Christianity had been transformed into something that was practiced for one hour on Sunday to make you feel good for seven days. Mm -hmm. It is not my business to correct the church, but it is my business to say that one of the guardians, moral guardians of our society 
is asleep. So how do we wake it up in your view? Well, what I do is I write as much as I can. I talk as much as I can. Uh, I've been at this. I've studied Islam since I was 30 years old, which is 43 years ago. So what I do is I try to educate. I work a uh, six and a half day week, 12 hours a day. I mean, I, uh, after I eat tonight, I'll be back at work. Uh, I'm just, I may be one guy, and uh, but I am slowly having an effect. For instance, I'm creating a center for the study of political Islam in Europe now. They're much more enthusiastic to do something about Islam in Europe than they are here in America. Well, I wanted to talk about that. I wanted to fast forward to today. It's basically Toledo 2.0 because traders have opened the gates to mass immigration, which is destroying our European homeland. And it's it's like suicidal Sweden, but only 2% of its immigrants are actually refugees. And the rest, I think, clearly come for welfare. But many of these immigrants, uh, they, they openly... Whoa, 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 whoa. Are you saying that people would come just for the money? Oh, of course they would. <laughs> of course they would. But you shocked me, girl. Many of these immigrants, they, they've openly talked about the conquest of Europe and yes. breeding as a tactic to take over. So how does this fit in with what you've studied about Islam? Well, the shorter answer is yes. <laughs> Muhammad himself declared that the womb was an engine of jihad. Now, remember, I told you a little story about how the Jews were handled. The women were, were sold as slaves, some as sex slaves. All of the children were adopted into the family. Islam has always appreciated the overwhelming power. The ultimate weapon is demographic conquest. Let me give you an example. Tibet may have once upon a time been Tibetan, but now then there are so many Han Chinese in Tibet, it will never, ever not be Tibetan. It will always be China now. Yeah. Yep. And so the Muslims believe the same thing. The world called it genocide when Tibet was being flooded by Chinese, but it's not genocide in Europe, apparently. You know, I got to say something here. White people are becoming touched in the head. <laughs> they're not thinking straight anymore. No, they're not. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about the psychology of that, because leftists claim to be concerned with human rights and women and gays, etc. And yeah. they, they say they're atheists, but then they have no issue with allowing Islam into their country. So have you considered how Europeans have come to this place? <sighs> We're too rich is one solution. I've noticed something. If you want a fighter, you don't want a rich person. Uh, and we suffer from too much wealth. Uh, there's also been a great demoralization, I think, of our society. We have the quality of introspection, but introspection has now become so chronic that we find we pick at every scab. We no longer have a balanced attitude about what life is about. That is, we have some problems, we have some pluses. The left has pretty much gone to the side of uh, perpetual therapy, if you will. And this perpetual therapy is mean that everyone considers himself weak and sick. So we have, we've lost our great vision of what we intend to do as a civilization. So, I mean, that's a very broad brush and probably half wrong, but there are some elements there. We seem to have lost our morale, our way. Um, but let me tell you something. The atheists are doing a better job, I'm going back to my original theme, than the church is, because what happened when they killed 10 atheists at Charlie Hebdo? Millions of atheists hit the streets. Yeah. What happens when they kill tens of thousands of African Christians? I can tell you here in the Bible Belt, nothing happens. So uh, it's, it's funny. Uh, the left is on its toes and the church is on its heels. Yeah, very interesting. It's uh, yeah, it seems like Christianity is becoming less popular in America, and I wonder why that is. Well, I'll tell you one thing that would help. 
it would help if it were tougher and stood for more. You know, it's interesting. There's only one military service in America which consistently has more people apply to get into it than they can take, and that's the U.S. Marines. And what do the U.S. Marines tell an 18-year-old? We do the toughest, meanest, hardest, most dangerous jobs in the world. And their testosterone-pumped teenagers go, yeah, I want some of that. I think the church needs to take a look at the U.S. Marines and offer tougher service. Yeah, it's interesting because there's a lot of people that are even going back now, a lot of young kids, they want to go back to something that's even older than Christianity, even some maybe pre-Christian traditions. What do you think about that idea? Well, it's kind of handy because you can kind of just make your own. (laughs) Yeah, maybe for new age pagans, but that's not the real thing. Well, you know, a friend was just telling me that the Islamic domination into Europe was probably a significant factor in the push for exploration by European maritime powers. You know, so true. A, a lot of people think, oh, evil colonialism and stuff, but they, they had their trade routes that were blocked by Islam, so they needed to find new ways around. So it was kind of more That's like right. an evolutionary imperative, correct? Yes. I mean, we have to understand that the one of the things that Islam did was to cut Europe off from the... Uh, uh, East, the Silk Route, basically. And so this was one of the things that they wanted was another trade route to the East. Now, it's interesting. Colonialism is considered evil, but jihadic conquest is considered a sweet blessing to humanity. <laughs> yeah. How does that work? Yeah, it's, a, it's double standards. Now, you had an analogy I liked. It said you, you were saying that the Western mind has become like the beaten dog that cowers when you approach it. How do you think yes. we got to that place? I think it's an imbalance and in, in self-introspection. I think that we have become, there are forms of neuroses in which you continue to examine yourself to the point where you stop getting stuff done. And you, you find, we, we all know people who become pessimistic and we have become very pessimistic. Uh, we, we're always looking at what we did wrong. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with looking at what we did wrong. It's just that after a while, if that's the only therapeutic model you have, you don't have anything that's actually uplifting. And so this is a form of de- creates a form of depression. And I think that's one reason that we find that more and more people don't want to stand up and fight for their civilization. Now, another thing that has happened is this, is that the left moved into the education and the universities, oh, yeah. whereas the conservatives basically just bowed out. Uh, they sort of conservatives write great emails, do great websites, write great books. But you don't find them. Let me give you an example. At Vanderbilt University, they will once again this Christmas, the Christians and the Muslims on the campus will have some sort of reason to come together to have some interfaith dialogue. Only the those who are apologists for Islam and Muslims show up. No one shows up like me to be a wrecking crew. That is, I don't mean being rude or loud, but to ask questions. The conservatives and the Christians do not want to engage the left and the Muslims in the public marketplace of ideas. They want to go to a meeting which they're there all by themselves, and they can be very patriotic and very enthusiastic amongst themselves. The great advantage of the left is, is it will invade the conservative realm to establish its own power. Conservatives don't want to do that. They want to write an email or be on talk radio. You have to get in the same room with your enemy. And that's what the conservatives and what the Christians do not want to do. Well, and don't forget that the left has taken over Hollywood. So that's where all the programming is coming from. And, and unfortunately, it's all about pop culture anymore. <laughs> it's, that's all it but takes. But again, not only the left has done a great job of this, but I also blame the conservatives for bowing out. We need better gut fighters. 
we need some we need some people who don't mind getting a, a tooth knocked out and a split lip, but prevailing in spite of it all. And I'm not talking about physical combat. I'm making an analogy to intellectual combat. Where you show up and you debate, you protest. Why is it that let's go back to Vanderbilt University again? They'll have this old big schmooze meeting. Why won't there be anyone out there, even atheists, with signs that say, stop the persecution of religious people around the world? Because it's not just Christians taking it in the neck. It's Hindus. It's Buddhists. It's Jews. I mean, I don't see the fight against Israel as having anything to do with Palestine. I see it as having everything to do with the doctrine of jihad. So we need better street fighters. Again, I'm not really saying that we need to be busting chops, but we do need by street fighters, I mean people who will show up at an event and bring moral charges against those who are perpetrators of evil. Silence in the face of evil is evil itself. And that's the charge I, I level against the conservatives and the Christians. And when good men sit around and do nothing, then it's over. <laughs> it, 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 evil that. prospers. Let me assure you that is, that's not just a saying, it is true. And that is where I condemn us. We are silent. And it, here's the deal. The Muslims want to win. We want to tie. You know how that works out? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way it's working out, too. We need to have some people on our side who want to, to want to win. Let me tell you something else I've learned from this. I know people who are decorated in military combat, but they are not willing to stand up in front of an audience. It takes a different kind of courage, it seems, to do these things. And we seem to be lacking this courage and will to fight. If you lose your morale as a warrior, you're useless. And I see a lot of defeatism among, amongst the right. They're like, oh, well, you know, they, we've already given one. Well, Hollywood controls, uh, is controlled by the left. We need to do things to push back everywhere. Well, of course, we have to hit it from every angle. And in my view, the conservatives are not far right enough. Conservatives are on the defense. They're crumbling. But the far right is actually on the offense, exposing the weakness of the left. And that's why the far right is gaining ground. And the losers, the outcasts, and the degenerates, which the left loves to prop up, won't be able to stop the force of the coming right. Well, the Republicans in particular stay a half step to the right of the Democrats. If the Democrats became full-out communist, then the Republicans would simply become socialist. And actually, I must say that the Republicans themselves seem to have lost their way. They're not even, they're just, they're democrat light. So even if America didn't meddle in foreign affairs and if APEC didn't agitate things because of the nature of Islam, would Muslims still be coming for our land and our people? Would they still want Europe? Is it part of their doctrine? It's completely part of their doctrine. Uh, the Sunnah of Muhammad is, is that the Sunnah, by the way, is the perfect life example of Muhammad. The Sunnah of Muhammad is he attacked his neighbors, then he attacked his neighbor's neighbors, and after he had conquered all of Arabia, his next thing was to push north into Syria, where there weren't any Muslims there. Nobody was bothering him. They were doing nothing. Remember, it is the object of every Muslim to recreate the life of Muhammad in their life. Muhammad attacked every neighbor, so Muslims should attack every neighbor. And once you've taken over the Middle East, well, you just do what comes next. You take the next. You see, Islam believes in the real estate principle that you can own all the real estate that adjoins you. But some people say, oh, but not all Muslims think like that. You're talking about extremists. So what do you say to that? Let me attack two issues here. Number one, extremist. If you're doing exactly what Muhammad did, you're not an extremist. If you're doing what Jesus did, you're not an extremist. If you're doing what the Buddha did, you're not an extremist Buddhist. So what Muslims are doing is imitating. 
if you want to know what Muhammad's jihad was like, just watch Islamic State. The only difference is they have AK-47s instead of swords, and they don't have Facebook and YouTube. But everything that they do is an exact duplication of what Muhammad did, without exception, all the way down to the last, and by the way, uh, I must say that Islamic State presents, it's almost like a uh, Hollywood serial movie. You know, you kind of wonder, okay, we burned them alive, we did the sex slaves things, what are we going to do next week? I don't know what it will be, but I can tell you this, it will be exactly what Muhammad did. So it's the Sunnah of Muhammad that drives everything. Now that I've lost the lead of your question. That's okay. Well, so then why is the Western government funding groups like ISIS? What, what are they trying to start here? Uh, the first rule of war is to know who your enemy is. We have never identified the enemy. George Bush said, we have going to fight a war on terror. Hello, George, wake up. There is no group called terror. We need to fight a war against political Islam. If we would fight that war, we could win. But as it is, we can't even, def- I knew uh, somebody went to uh, Afghanistan and they asked, they kept asking the foot soldiers, why are you here? None of them had a clear answer. You know why they didn't have a clear answer? Because they weren't given a clear mission by their leaders. And I'm not blaming the military people. They are controlled by the civilians. It is astounding the profound ignorance we have about Islam 13 years after 9-11. Who who were they? Why did they do it? Well, we've never answered those questions. We're going to get crazier and crazier with our responses to Islam because they're divorced from the reality of who is the enemy and what is the nature of their combat. Give up on the bullets and bombs. Those are not important. What we need to be doing is to fighting an ideological war, a civilizational war, a war of ideas. Our civilization is superior in just about every way to Islam. Now let's go to the Muslim business. I never discuss Muslims. I only discuss Islam. Why is that? There's 1.5 billion Muslims, and they range from people who they range from Muslims who never fast during Ramadan and who drink beer when they can. That is to say, they're about as Islamic as most Christians following the pattern of Christ. So it is useless to discuss Muslims. Everybody knows a good Muslim. So they go, well, he's not a real Muslim. I know this Muslim and he's a really nice guy. Great, who cares? I'm glad he's a nice guy. So you never get anywhere talking about people. If you wanna talk about people, that's what I call the Muslimology. I have no interest in Muslimology because I only care about what's harming us, which is the doctrine of Islam. Okay, understood. Well, if you could summarize this political system of Islam, since you've said it's more political than religious, how would you do it? Here's the difference between what I call religious Islam and political Islam. Religious Islam is what you do. You join up by saying there is no God but Allah, Muhammad is his prophet, and you hope to follow the Sharia in such a manner that you go to paradise and avoid hell. Great. Fine. I wish you the best with that. The politics of Islam is when a Muslim tells me that even though I hired them as a clerk and they weren't wearing a hijab, now then they've decided they want to wear a hijab and they're going to wear their hijab or I'm going to get sued. That is politics. It has nothing to do with religion. We're slowly, for instance, prisoners are in, in jail. Oh, they have to be served halal food. That is a political demand. So what we have here are political demands. That is, we need to change our culture and our civilization to accommodate the Sharia. I'm very concerned over that. I don't want my grandchildren eating halal food because I object to the way it's processed. 
but there's already efforts to try to bring halal food so that everyone in America has to eat the Sharia food. That is political. It has nothing to do whatsoever with the religion of Islam. And that's what I'm concerned about, political Islam. Look, I don't care if you pray to Mecca or Michigan. I could care less. But when you try to tell me that I have to eat your food, that my children have to eat your food in in the school system, I object to that. Yeah, it's like, I mean, I have no problem with those, you know, with the people who want to practice Islam, but really... provided that they do it in their own countries and keep it out of white countries. That's the issue here. We're not saying, hey, you can't have your religion. You know, you need to stop doing what you're doing. No, we just don't want it in our countries. That's how I feel. What about you? Well, I object to every single aspect of the Sharia. Okay. So if you're trying to implement anything about the Sharia, then I don't want it. I don't even want to see your hijab. Here's why. The hijab is the headscarf covering because it means that you are Sharia compliant, and the Sharia says that I am a kafir, that I'm to be subjugated, that I'm to be minimized, that I'm to be abused, that my government is to be taken away from me and Sharia put in its place. So that's what your Sharia banner means, what you call the hijab. So I object to the hijab for the same reason that a black man cares about what a Ku Klux Klan outfit is. It's not the cloth, it's the the political symbol. So to me, a hijab is like a, a flag, a banner for the Sharia. I don't want it. I don't want it in my face because I despise the Sharia. Now, did I say I despise Muslims? No, I despise the Sharia. The Sharia which calls for uh, young children to be married. The Sharia that calls for female genital mutilation. The Sharia which says the enslavement of the Kafir is good. I'm offended by that. I don't like it. I don't want it and I fight against it. In your research, what struck you the most in the Quran? What really jumped out at you that you want to share with us? that there are two Qurans. The first Quran is written in Mecca and is generally religious. Then the second Quran is written in Medina and is enormously political. There is no jihad written in the Quran of Mecca, the early Quran. The 24% of the Quran written in Medina concerns itself with jihad. So that's one of the two things that I noticed. There are two jihads with two different messages. And the other thing is, is that the great majority of all Islamic doctrine concerns me, the Kafir how I should be subjugated, oppressed, and annihilated. Well, this may be news to you, but I object to that. I'm, to use the word, I'm offended that you want to destroy me and my civilization. I'm offended that there is danger in what I do because I espouse political ideas. So how can we get a copy of that other Quran? Well, they're both there in the big green book when you get one given to you. It's just that you don't notice it. Uh, Now, the Qurans that I sell on politicalislam.com are readable because they're in the right time order. The Quran you pick up or are given to the mosque is virtually inverted in time order. And the story has been taken out of the Quran. The original Quran starts, the original Quran, Muhammad's Quran, started off with a hymn to God and ended with political domination of the entire world. So they're both there. They're in the same binding. And if you get one of the big, thick, green ones that has the Arabic as well, every chapter starts off with telling you this Quran was written in Mecca or this surah, this chapter was written in Mecca or this surah was written in Medina. So I'm not breaking any trade secrets here. So did Muhammad talk about white people as blue-eyed devils? Is that really true? No, no, no. There's no blue-eyed devils to be killed in there. You must be confusing Malcolm X. (laughs) Okay, well, that's good to know because I like blue-eyed people. (laughs) I do too. 
In your view, what must Europe do to reverse this damage that has been done with this so-called diversity, I guess, if we could put it? Well, first off, we need to, I don't mind diversity. What I mind is the destruction of unity. I'm going to say that again. Diversity is half of life. The other half of life is unity. And diversity is being used to destroy unity. That is, well, for instance, this is the argument about the Sharia. Why should we as Muslims have to live under your laws? We want to live under our laws and under diversity. We need to have our laws and you can have your laws. Well, it used to, if you look on the back of a dollar bill, it says E pluribus unum, out of many, one. Well, the new motto of America is out of many, many more. So we no longer, we can't even decide whether English is the, is the official language. There are those who argue that, well, we have the Constitution, but it's a loosey-goosey document. You can interpret it any way you want to. Hey, have a good time. So I'm for both diversity and unity. The diversity movement today is all about diversity without unity. Do I make sense? Well, yeah, it's also about monoculture when you think about it. It's all about just globalists. Well, this is You're true. the same citizen. We're all, there's no differences. We're all the same, which is a lie. That's, no, that's anti-diversity. It really is. It, it is astounding to me how command of the language commands thought. And that's the reason I object to political correctness so much. Well, you can't use that word. Well, why not? Well, it will cause you to think the wrong thought. That's why. <laughs> and really, when you get down to it, it's okay if you don't like people, and if you don't want to hang around oh, listen, them. It's okay. I think, we all have, I think we all have a right to hate our neighbor. I think we ought to strive for love, but I think there's some neighbors that they need hating. <laughs> And separation can be a good thing when people don't like each other. There's nothing wrong with that. But this forcing everyone to get along is going to backfire. Well, it already has backfired. I remember I started off by saying they call me a racist and I was a member of civil rights. Later, I taught for eight years in a black university. And one day I roared at the crowd. I said, I am so sick at what I did in civil rights. I said, I helped to plant the tree of civil rights. I wasn't a big player. I was a minor player, a two-bit player, but I helped to plant it. And we had a dream that one day black students such as yourself would be excellent citizens and excellent scholars. I said, you're here for a free ride and a, and a fine time until you get a, a certificate from here so you can get a job, so you can get a better car, so you can get better sex. I said, you make me sick. You don't care about learning. You don't care about knowledge. All you care about is a good time. I said, I feel like I wasted my time in civil rights. Yeah, it's, it's They looked shame. at me like, uh, but it's true. This quality of students I saw at my, the university I taught was, was a black university. I asked the department head, I said, you went to school here, right? I says, what was the caliber of students when you were here? He says, well, they weren't what they are now. I says, these are dreadful. I says, they don't care. They don't know. And they don't want to learn. He says, yep. Yeah. Well, and, and some of that is. I know some people freak out when you talk about this, but we have to accept that races are different and be okay with that. <laughs> you know, we're not we're not the same. We have different strengths. We have different weaknesses, and it's okay. The sooner we realize that, the better it will be for everybody. Well, I just think that sometimes with our social programs, just as I gave you the civil rights movement. I mean, I was involved in civil rights, and here I am at the end saying, you know, you're not as good a student as you were before civil rights. Now, there will be a lot of people who become outraged and angered over anything that a white guy says, but I spent eight years in a black university, and thank you, I think I'm allowed to draw some conclusions, and one of them is it didn't work that well, because if civil rights had worked, we would have better students today, not worse students. Now, where do you think our country is going? I mean, you've been around, you've seen some things. Where do you think we're headed here in America? Well, I hope we're headed to renewal. 
because we certainly need it. However, right now, I don't see a renewal in the offing because we're not angry enough and we're not outraged enough. As a society, we have lost the ability to be outraged. We'll just take anything anymore. So I think that we need to, again, I come back to the fact that we have too many, we're too rich. And by that, I mean, look, I think if we could just make it that jihad would take take away your cell phone, we could have an entire nation up in arms. Okay? Why do I say that? When I'm in a restaurant, people don't seem to be talking to each other. They seem to be texting. So I think if maybe we could, maybe that's the strategy we've evolved here. If we could just convince people that if Sharia law means you'll lose your cell phone, making this up, then they become outraged. But the loss of our civilization doesn't seem to outrage many people because they've been told in school, we don't really have an out civilization anyway. Everything we got, we stole. Exactly. We have no culture. We're just inherently bad people. So just, just rejoice. I actually know of a case with this. A black friend of mine said that his son was in school and they said something about uh, culture tomorrow. And so this white kid asked a question about what should he do? And the teacher told him, you don't have a culture. Uh, look at Europe, folks. Well, threat makes people rise to the occasion. So maybe we'll... There well, we'll see. My personal plan is to go down with all guns firing. Do you think that this country could be splitting up? Could be some secession breaking up into different parts? And would that no, be a I good thing? I, I, I'm afraid that I'm a student of the slow rot. What do you mean? I don't think anything, I don't think anything like that will happen at all at this stage. Now, let me add this. And you've asked me what I think the future is. I think the future is the past. However, having said that, there are some movements on the horizon which are good. Are you familiar with the Pegida movement in Europe? Sure. Okay, the Pegida movement is a grassroots movement. And let's talk about the grassroots here. Everything that I've said up to this point about our leadership is true and accurate. That is, church leadership, political leadership, law enforcement, educational, it's all punky and rotten at the core. However, there is, in the, at the grassroots level, a, a push to change things. I spend very little time on the Internet. My wife spends a lot of time on the Internet, and here's what she taught me about how to read on the Internet. Do this. Read the article and scan the, con- no, scan the article and read the comments. When you read the comments today, they have radically changed since 9-11. After 9-11, the comments involved those who knew something about Islam, a minority, the left, and Muslims. And there was a lot of went back and forth on the comments. Today, those who know dominate the comments. The Muslims barely come in at all, and the left just comes in to say, all religions are bad, all religions are the same, all religions are bad, and then they leave. We are seeing at the grassroots a push. That is, we're seeing that the common man is realizing that he can't wait for the leadership. The leadership is not going to come. The leadership in the Republican Party is without a spine. The leadership in the Democratic Party, unfortunately, has a spine, but a plan that I don't like. By the way, let me say, I used to be a Democrat. I would still call myself a Truman Democrat, never mind the fact that those don't exist. But what I'm saying here is, is that there is a push at the grassroots level. I think the Tea Party was one manifestation of this. So there is hope. But it lies in the common man, not in those who are rich and not in those who are powerful. They're pretty much useless to us. Well, the one obstacle we have here is we're also 
also being hit with mass immigration and a lot of these incoming people don't necessarily share the same value. So how do you see that conflicting? I see it as a massive conflict. Um, and I would say that I know leftists who would say it's delightful that they don't share our values, that we need to create Somalia here because America is so dreadful, particularly the South. So we need Somalia. That would be the best way to do it. So we need to bring in all the Somalis we can. By the way, I'd like to point something out to you. On all the refugee work, which is so many Muslims are being brought in, these are run by churches, Catholic charities. Yeah, I know. So we find here once again that the so-called churches, and I say so-called because I'm not sure what they stand for anymore, uh, The most of the church, a lot of the churches are simply leftist organizations now, and they do... Um, they don't study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They study Marks, and that's pretty much it. Sure, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, we've done plenty of shows on that. <laughs> the pillars of political correctness and Marxism and cultural Marxism. It's here, folks, and it's destroying our country. So what are we going to do about it? Well, what, I, what I do about it is I, I'm definitely a, a shh. I stand up and I make my myself known. By the way, there are many Christians and Jews who don't like me in Nashville. But I take that as an honor. Why? Why not? Well, because I sat down and I have meetings with Jewish leaders and I talk to them about Muhammad and the Jews. They don't want to hear that. As a matter of fact, they let me know that they don't want to hear that because they have good friends who are Muslims. And then I tell them, well, there's 12 verses in the Quran that say a Muslim is never the friend of a Kafir. And there's more Jew hatred in the Islamic doctrine than there is in Mein Kampf. Well, our lefty Jewish fellow is now having a very bad day. Because first off, he's not used to anybody standing up and talking to him, standing on their back leg. No, because it's anti-Semitic, right? <laughs> anti-Semitic. Well, who cares? You know, I'm anti. I, I just the labels thing. I don't care about well, anymore. Well, we should ask. We should ask some of these Zionists. Then why are they pushing for mass immigration into Europe? Because there are lots of Jews that are pushing for that in Europe and in America as well. Well, I can I tell you this much: you won't get a. I find that most thinking is compartmentalized. That is, they may on one hand argue one thing for Israel and another thing for the United States. But uh, anyway, uh, I, I find that religious leaders and uh, others do not care for me because I speak about those issues they don't want to be spoken of. For instance, I, I say the same thing to religious leaders. The Muslims want to win and you want to tie. You know, you've created a Christianity that has no backbone, no outrage, no moral purpose other than your own pleasure. Well, they're not used to being talked to like that. And by the way, I do it on radio. I'm one of these peculiar people who will tell you the same thing in private, I tell you in public. Well, I hope you had lots of kids and that they uh, are also the same way because you seem to be well, actually, more of a dying breed. My, my daughter helps me to run my business. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, what else do you want to share with us? What else do you want to say that's uh, something you want to impart to everybody? This is a winnable war. It's a war that doesn't involve bullets and bombs. It's a war of ideas. It's a war of ideologies. And it's a war of civilizations. You're being lied to by your leaders. I don't care who your leader is. If it's a university, he's a bigger liar, perhaps, than the clergyman you go to see on Sunday. Uh, don't worry about law enforcement because they're not worried about you. Now, if you're shoplifting, they are. But other than that, on the subject of Islam, uh, they're not worried about it at all. So uh, I'm afraid that my message is you need to gather with your own, uh, put on your armor and go to work. And the armor here are books and ideas and knowledge. And speak up. 
if you're not being hated, you're not doing your job. That's my advice. Yeah, I like that. I like that. That's a good philosophy. Who cares? It's just words anyway. Well, Bill, please tell us about your books, websites, and any upcoming talks you have. Well, my talks, goodness gracious, my biggest series of talks are coming in Europe. I'm more popular in Europe than I am in America. Maybe they just don't well, know me. Well, for good, for good reason. <laughs> no, they see they're further along the Islam business than we are. That's why. My books are very unusual. Uh, some people think because I'm a scientist, my books would be hard to read. Uh, I designed my books to be read at the high school level. One time I paid a high schooler 20 bucks to read uh, The Life of Muhammad, and he could read it and ask, answer questions. So my goal is simplicity. Many of my books are quite small. Uh less than 70 pages because I've discovered that people don't want to read big books. So I'll give them little books, but I've got big books too. You can go to the, my YouTube channel, which is the Bill Warner PhD YouTube. I've got a Facebook and I've got politicalislam.com in which I sell my books and try to stir the waters and keep things hopping. Well, thank you, Bill. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Have a nice day. If you want to learn more, I'd encourage you to visit the Bill Warner YouTube channel to listen to his more detailed presentations. I agree, the Western mind can be comparable to a beaten dog, and the generations before us have allowed foreign interests into our societies. But that does not excuse the violent and hateful actions of Islamism in white countries. And we can't shrug each action off as a false flag because the fact remains. This ideology is a real thing, and there are real bodies that are mind-controlled by it. And they are once again coming into Europe in droves. And just because many Jews sit in Europe and push for mass immigration, which is a real thing and will be dealt with separately, it doesn't excuse the action of Islamism in Europe. And just because Western governments agitate and create conflict in the Middle East, still it is not justification for the raping, violence, and hatred directed among innocent European folks. We should never tolerate innocent white children being hurt because something a few white elitists have manufactured. Did you know that in Sweden, an indigenous Swede does not get free healthcare education? They pay high taxes and still pay on top of that for those services. But an incoming non-white immigrant is entitled to free, not a kroner paid healthcare and education. Meanwhile, Sweden is trying to ban so-called fascist parties, trying to ban the parties that are the voice of the indigenous Swedes speaking out against white genocide against slavery. So where are the good-hearted Muslims speaking out in defense of the destruction of European people and their homogenous nations? Where are they? Because God knows there are plenty of white people who are concerned with their welfare. Thanks for listening, everyone. I have some terrific guests coming up next. Find me by going to Radio314.com and support us by going to RedIceMembers.com. Bye for now.